Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. My guest is uh, Gerard Honig of Symbiotic Health. I was about to introduce him, but he will do a much better job of doing that than me. So, uh, Gerard, how are you doing? I'm very well. How are you? Good, good. Yeah, give us a brief intro. Tell us uh, how Symbiotic came to be and your position there and, and what you do. Sure. Uh, so, uh, Gerard Honig, uh, it's a, a pleasure to be on the podcast. Thank you so much for the invitation. Um, uh, and I was asked to talk about the topic of the microbiome. I actually have a, a number of roles where I uh, interface with that field. Uh, I am a research manager at an organization called the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, uh, where we manage, uh, I, I assist in managing a, a really broad array of different uh, projects and uh, portfolio projects related to the microbiome. I also am a founder and director of Symbiotic Health, which is a, a company focused on uh, novel drug delivery solutions as applied to um, the microbiome and microbiome-derived therapeutics. Okay, so at, at Symbiotic Health, you said it's a novel drug delivery solution. Does that mean, uh, you know, what's the mechanism? Is it uh, introducing certain bacteria into the gut that will help uh, stop certain conditions? Or, you know, give me a little bit more sure. detail. Sure. So we've worked on a number of um, number of different approaches. So in the, the first, uh, which uh, was really the origins of the company, was essentially optimizing a procedure which is, called, which is known as fecal microbiota transplantation. And essentially what we developed was a methodology to take bacteria that are derived from fecal matter from healthy individuals, extract them, and prepare them in a completely innocuous, uh, relatively patient-friendly uh, pill, which is indistinguishable from a pill you would buy at the GNC, as opposed to the more traditional method of transplanting fecal-derived microbiota which is uh, rather invasive. So we developed that, and and, um, okay. and that was um, applied to a disease known as Clostridium difficile colitis, um, and that was uh, the, the origins of the company focused on transplantation of bacteria. And we subsequently um, have worked uh, in delivery of microbiome-derived proteins. So these were enzymes, or one enzyme in particular, that is present within the microbiome, uh, of certain people, um, and uh, has uh, uh, the ability to target in a highly ultra-selective way specific bacteria that reside within the gut, those bacteria being the ones that are, that are um, pathogenic, that are dangerous. Um, and, then, and, and so we, it's, uh, the fundamentals of the technology are uh, based around um, basically uh, materials uh, that have particular properties to um, enable the, these kinds of interventions. So why why would you have to do um, a fecal microbial transplant? Are you not able to analyze, you know, the fecal matter from a, a healthy individual and culture the selected strains that are necessary to accomplish the same thing? Is it is it because it's so complicated that you can't do that, or what's the reason? Oh, okay. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll address that from a big picture. Actually, not 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 so much focused on what we 
we're, we're working on, but but uh, but as the field has evolved. So the short end. So the question is what what. So um, first of all, uh, fecal derived microbiota transplantation has really demonstrated safety and efficacy in only one disease state. Um, I would say that that's widely accepted within the medical community, which is Clostridium difficile colitis. Um, and there's a variety of efforts underway to um, evaluate it in, in other conditions, more uh, such as inflammatory bowel disease, uh, but those are, are still you know, quite investigational. So um, now, so uh, it's still quite limited in terms of, uh, although there's a great deal of excitement around the therapeutic potential of the microbiome, which is quite justified for a variety of kind of basic factors uh, that make it attractive, it's still um, not yet unequivocally demonstrated, um, in, in, except in one very particular, very important disease, but one, one very particular disease. So that's the first, uh, first point I wanted to make. Second point is, is it possible to um, break down the components of the microbiota that work, let's say, in Clostridium difficile colitis or maybe even in another disease condition? identify specific kind of rationally selected components, be those bacterial components or um, specific proteins, enzymes produced by bacteria, uh, particular um, metabolites and, and, and forms of energy that are generated by the bacteria, and say, actually, these uh, specific elements are what's wrong in a disease state, or at least the, the, those elements have the capacity to correct a pathology. And the answer is probably. Yes, uh, and so that was essentially so. Symbiotic health worked on this in one particular direction of basically um, isolate. Well, we, we we this was technology that was licensed from Rockefeller University, but um, uh, of uh, focusing on one particular enzyme that's made by um, something called a bacteriophage, which is actually a virus that infects bacteria, and there's actually ten times more viruses than there are bacteria. Within the gut, um, and this, and, and they have a, lot, a variety of ecological strategies to manipulate the gut microbiome to to um, a variety of effects. So, uh, so that so we uh, worked um, with uh, with the, with an investigator at Rockefeller University to um, uh, attempt to develop that particular enzyme, which is a very specific component of of one specific component of the microbiota to therapeutic effect. Um, now, what are some of now some of the challenges that have faced the field in doing this uh i would say there's a couple um the first is uh clinical as i said we still don't really we still don't even have an unequivocal demonstration except in one particular disease state that transplanting the microbiota is beneficial and i'm moving back to the question of you asked very specifically about transplanting bacteria and why you might want to move away from that and under what circumstances and what would trigger that. So first of all, fecal microbiota transplantation, we have this incredible example from Clostridium difficile colitis showing that it can actually alter a disease course and really radically change somebody's um, uh, clinical outcomes, which is great. And so we know that it can have that positive effect, uh, but that's still only demonstrated for one disease state. And what other disease states you would want to look at? Um, with fecal microbiome transplantation or any other, let's say, microbiome, micro, microbiome inspired in, uh, um, intervention, of which there are many different flavors. Uh, so that's one problem. What's the right clinical condition to look at? I would argue that the next one would be inflammatory bowel disease, and I think that's backed up by the number of companies and academic groups working in that particular disease area. 
we can come back to that in more detail if you'd like. But beyond that, so it's the next pretty one... and, yeah, and a couple of couple of rare diseases. Uh, but beyond that, that's a major, major challenge. What's the right area to focus on clinically for, uh, in terms of the potential for the microbiome? Yeah, no, I, I've, I've heard, right, C. difficile is deadly, or it can be deadly. It's so debilitating as well. Um, so fecal transplants appear to work. But I've also heard, you know, and this is just anecdotal. I'm not in the field, but, um, you know, at least in the past when they would do FMTs, sometimes it would change the personality of the person or it would have other unintended side effects. I mean, do you, how much insight do you, have, do you have into why it works in some cases and some not, or why it works at all to do FNT for C. difficile? Uh, sure, sure. Oh, so, okay, so just focusing on C. difficile, the efficacy is, it varies from study to study. It's generally thought to be 80 to 90%. Factors that influence whether or not it works um, that, that, that are known well, um, uh, we 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 know what doesn't particularly influence efficacy. The specific person that's donating the microbiome, for example, doesn't seem to matter very much. Um, and uh, and and be, I would say um, cases that are more severe probably generally respond better. And beyond that, why it would work in ninety percent and not in ten percent, or even why some clinical protocols work better than others. Um, uh, is, I would say, is not particularly well known. Um, and so we don't really have the, the answer to that. Um, now, the other question you said is, what are we really doing when we transplant somebody's microbiome and how might it affect any aspect, frankly, of their body's functioning? Because we know, um, you know, we didn't, we didn't spend too much time about the basic introduction to the microbiome, but um, for those of you know, your listeners that, that for whom uh, maybe don't haven't been so acquainted with the subject, the microbiome effectively is the entire collection and or community of microorganisms that live on and in our bodies and have co-evolved with us for for many um, uh, for for hundreds of thousands or millions of years. Um, and and these are this um, collection this. Um, of organisms that live with us and travel with us, particularly living within our GI tract, but also on our skin and basically any part of our body that comes into contact with the outside world. This is a general feature of really all multicellular organisms, I would say. Um, and uh, they, it, it, it's increasingly clear that we don't, we don't know what we don't know uh, in general because it's, it's a rapidly advancing field. At the same time, we do know that the microbiome at least has the potential to influence pretty much every aspect of human physiology. Uh, that includes digestion, intake of energy, um, uh, um, metabolic function, so processing of energy sources, neurological function, certainly, um, uh, as well as especially immune function and the ability to from the body both to, to deal with um, pathogens to defend itself from pathogenic uh, or my other microorganisms that are pathogenic, uh, and also um, cancer, yeah, certainly. Uh, and, and also, we also know the microbiome influences the responses and and uh, of to uh, to drugs. Uh, that's also been demonstrated. So, uh, so yeah. question is, when we transplant the microbiome, is there the potential for long term outcomes that are um, negative? Uh, the answer is yes. Uh, do we uh, even know what, where to start looking? In terms of monitoring for that, no. Um, and 
And so the question about changing a personality, that, that's one that probably is a little bit more anecdotal. But we certainly know from animal studies um, and the limited number of human data that, for example, transplantation of the bacteria, gastrointestinal bacteria, has, can uh, influence um, weight gain. Uh, that's been conclusively shown in laboratory animals, and there, and there also is some evidence in, from, from um, both anecdotal and also controlled clinical studies that uh, transplanting bacteria may have uh, effects on your ability to um, manage your blood sugar. Now, whether those influences are positive or negative is hard to say. It depends on the on the context. Now, so that's that. Then it, that's where it comes to to basically risk and benefit. So in the case of Clostridium difficile, a very severe case of Clostridium difficile, as you said, there's 30,000 mortalities every year in the U.S., at minimum, probably more. And I also serve on the, the board of directors, board of trustees for um, a nonprofit focused on Clostridium difficile infection. And, and so I would say, based on my understanding, working with that organization, that's a, quite a conservative estimate. And, and the, the, the human impact is very great. So now for a patient who's going to the bathroom 20 times a day or is at risk of basically can't have a, an organ transplant because they have Clostridium difficile colitis and is then going to die secondary to not having the organ transplant or something like that, um, and where the, 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 the level of evidence about fecal transplantation is very good, then probably the possibility that they might have long-term weight gain may be secondary. Now, on the other hand, when we start going into diseases where the level of evidence is um, is lighter and is where we, we have less reason to believe that it might work, then you start to think, well, maybe fecal transplantation is not the way to go. And instead, we might want to develop a, a more rationally designed and potentially safer approach where we have a much more controlled input into the system, namely, as you said, one specific bacteria, 10 specific bacteria, a bacterial metabolite, a bacterial protein that's been isolated. Um, so the, the, the assumption in the field is that that's, that simpler input will be, it'll be easier to define this range of different responses. Um, of course, that's... Well, what's odd is, um, you know, the again, this is anecdotal, but, you know, eating sauerkraut, eating fermented foods, that kind of thing, those are complex inputs. But they seem to be, you know, very beneficial for people. But yet, you know, uh, companies are trying to do very specific inputs. I guess, you know, what else could they do besides that? But um, what does that tell you about, uh, you know, what you're trying to do? Are you going about it the right way? Does that inform you at all, those kinds of things? Or? So you're asking whether the, the evidence that's out there related to fermented food products, how that is, can be interpreted and kind of move forward? Is that kind of the question? Well, what does it tell you? I mean, you know, you're working on efforts that, you know, are a lot more targeted to affect the microbiome, but yet it seems to be that very um, complex things like ingesting, you know, fermented foods seem to help. You Maybe not for C. difficile, but they definitely seem yeah. to affect people's bowel movements and other health factors, yeah. you know. So what does that tell you? Yeah, well, first of all, fermented foods are not, <laughs> they're not, they have a lot of elements. But there are also certain common elements that are present in a wide variety of fermented food products and also um, supplements, right? And those are pretty pretty narrow range of very particular bacteria, first of all. I would say industrial fermented foods. The very traditional form of fermented foods or um, 
that are basically growing, you know, whatever is available. Though even those, they're a very narrow range of bacteria because there's only a particular subset of bacteria that are naturally present in vegetable matter and actually ferment well. And those, you know, have then were then became industrialized and became basically the probiotics industry. So those were all identified, the ones that are sold as probiotics, not the ones in fermented foods, but there's a lot of overlap. So those were all identified uh, mostly by a guy called Eli Meshnikov uh, in, in the early uh, 20th century. And he actually formulated all of these ideas, he and his colleagues, I should say, formulated all of these ideas about how bacteria might influence human health, like in the 20s. Um, and, uh, and they just didn't have the technology to, that we have today. Um, now, what does the technology enable? So, so the, the issue with fermented foods is it's, a, it's an extremely narrow range of the bacteria that are in the human gut. So they, might, they may be helpful. There's certainly evidence in, you know, in, in, in mild gastrointestinal distress that they would be helpful. They're unfortunately not particularly helpful in Clostridium difficile. At least that's what most studies would suggest. Or if they have an effect, the effect is quite modest. So, um, so the, the the answer to the question is, and 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 that and separately, fermented foods, as you said, they have a, a great lot of complexity. There's a lot of things in them. There's the bacteria. It's also the the metabolites of the bacteria, um, and what those bacteria will produce. Um, that said, um, all of those bacteria that are in either fermented foods or in the probiotics that are inspired, let's say, from fermented foods. That is an infinitesimal, infinitesimally narrow selection of the total diversity of bacteria that actually live within the human gut, most which come from all kinds of different sources, not just fermented foods. So there's reason to think that however helpful fermented foods might be, there may be other conditions, other situations um, where elements that are definitely not present within any fermented food product or any probiotic may be needed. Um, uh, but certainly there's a lot to learn from that tradition um, and, and, and from the tradition of both fermented foods and, and probiotics. And that definitely has been a great inspiration to the growth of the field more recently. Have people tried to put um, sensors inside a mouse's guts so like in vitro or in vivo, they can you know monitor and sequence all the species in there the viruses, the parasites, and kind of model the gut? Or is it just like a Herculean task because of the hundreds um, or thousands of species in there? Well, okay, so that's a great question, and that comes to the new technology. So what can we do now that Eli Meshnikov couldn't do? So Eli Meshnikov in the 1920s could culture certain, could grow in the laboratory certain kinds of bacteria. Now, with modern technologies, yes, we can take snapshots uh, of everything that's there. We can catalog certainly genetic material and, and also many other um, types of uh, elements of the microbiome. We can, um, and that has really kind of taken off since the late 90s. Um, and it is definitely, po so it's possible to, to pr produce extremely detailed descriptive information from a mouse or from a human or, or both um, of exactly what is present. The, now, the second part of your question is, can you use that to actually generate a comprehensive? So that is not a Herculean task, and actually, it we so in 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 in, genet, in genomics, which is the field that covers that that particular form of analysis, um, we uh, are rapid. We're outpacing 
the speed of advancement of that we see in computer technology. So it's actually the cost and efficiency of genetic sequencing is actually um, it's, 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 a, it's a very rapid exponential decrease. So cataloging what's there is not the problem. Turning that into a comprehensive model that will actually allow you to understand what's going on, I would say that's the next big challenge. And that, that at this point, I wouldn't characterize Herculean, but it's a very, very difficult thing to do. Um, and a very difficult thing to do in the context of a, the, the microbiome interacting with every element in the world, diverse diets that people have, because frankly, you know, the microbiome of a mouse is of limited interest in the long run, probably, to most people anyway. We really want to understand what's going on in people, and people have extremely diverse lifestyles and diets and microbiome. Well, right, but, but putting in vivo sensors in a person is, you know, difficult for many reasons. And, you know, maybe uh, a simpler thing would be sampling their gut microbiome every single day for, you know, a month or 90 days. I don't know if that's, that's happened, you know, and, uh, it has, I just yes. to, okay. what, yeah, was, yeah, what no, was the result? It definitely has. Kind of and, and actually there's the, the technologies for non-invasive monitoring are improving steadily. So, um, so actually that's the number one advantage that the microbiome field has is exactly that is, is the ability to sense it and change it in a manner that's actually less invasive than if you wanted to see what's going on to put a sensor in your heart or, you know, in, in, in your liver. That's actually much harder uh, under, than understanding and sampling and following what's going on in the microbiome. Yeah, that's one nice thing. Yeah, it's weird because it's um, it, sounds, it seems so complicated. You said there's, like, like, how many species of bacteria are in the average person's gut? You know, what's the range? And then how many types of phages, you know, viruses? And then parasites? And then metabolize from the bacteria, and then I guess you'd. I'm, I'm betting you have redundancy. You know, if a certain bacteria eats X, there's probably three or four other kinds that do the same thing. And then, you know, uh, guts are resilient to you know, you know, a person will eat different things every day. Yet the gut profile probably stays pretty similar. How does it do that? I mean, it just seems like crazy complicated with all this stuff going on. You know? Uh, well, yeah, it, it is. Um is so uh it is yes it's very complicated that said um we don't need to have a perfect explanation for everything that's going on to come up with something that will be impactful and useful and i think that's what that's the that is at least that's the i wouldn't say leap of faith but that is the um that is a kind of defining hope and aspiration of the entire field that we that I guess coming up with a complete description of everything that's going on and all the elements that you talked about um, that may not be possible or a bit at something that we would see in our lifetimes. On the other hand, we do we we can we can understand some basic principles and there is the potential to change it even before we completely understand it. Um, and I think that's something that's driving the field forward. Just that assumption. Well, knowing the science that you know, are there any? Uh, tell me, maybe a few insights or surprises or major influencers that you've seen in this roiling soup of stuff that lives inside us. You know, uh, like one thing again that that sticks out to me is like that the gut can be very resilient, but it can also suffer a regime change. You know, let's say when you get C. difficile and it can take over and transform the gut. You know, or when you have antibiotics, it seems to shift uh, the, the balance of all the populations. You know, what have you seen that are major influencers on the gut? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, you named a few of the big ones. Uh, certainly, antibi- um, antibiotics uh, are the single most significant uh, factor that has the potential to remodel the gut. Now, so, um, uh, so, so, you know, we already talked about that. I think the resiliency question, you know, why some people are resilient and other people are not, uh, what the kind of tipping point is. I think that's, um, that is, um, I think that is also an important question. I would say the fact that the bacteria, okay, there's one, one idea that I think is an emerging concept, which is there is not a clear line between friend and foe in the gut. Almost any bacteria, like just focus on bacteria, but I think the same is true in, in, for these other organisms you mentioned. Almost any bacteria in the, the in a certain context has the potential to be beneficial, and in another context is detrimental. Um, and that is so. That's the concept that's known as pathobiont. So patho as in pathogenic, and biont as in symbiont lives with us. And so most bacteria are not clearly one or the other. They it depends on the ecological context. Um, now there are some organisms that are frankly um, pathogenic, but Clostridium difficile, for example, is not one of those. Right? You or I, or about fifteen percent of the of the American population, healthy American population, has Clostridium difficile in their gut, and it is a part of the microbiome, and it is completely harmless in those people, unless, for example, they may take antibiotics, in which case it sensitizes them. So I would say that is one kind of um, emerging uh, concept that we can't make this clear dividing line between bacteria that are beneficial and bacteria that are not. Um, So, um, yeah, I would say that's probably one of the most influential aspects. And then otherwise, things that have really advanced um, the understanding, I would say, frankly, have largely been engineering advances in analytical technology particularly the ability to um, understand what's going on in individual cells and uh, generate maps that don't, instead of aggregating across an entire soup of different stuff and try to, after the soup is made, try to understand what all the different components are, instead breaking it down into each individual cell by cell and then reconstructing the models based on uh, understanding at a single cell resolution. That's a technical advance, but that's also that technical, the technical advance in sequencing basically was what basically launched this entire field, um, right? So as biologists, we're often really following the engineers, actually, in, in terms of what the new technologies allow us to even uh, to attempt to do. Okay. Well, very good. So what's what's on the, the roadmap um you know, for symbiotic health over the next year, anything major that's coming or, you know, what do you see as like the near-term future of your efforts? Um, well, symbiotic health is really, is really primarily focused on, on um, at this point, on bottleneck problems in drug delivery. Um, so that is, uh, so one area that has been very limiting in the microbiome field, and actually not just in the microbiome field, is the ability to take um, microorganisms or microbe-derived proteins and turn them into something like a drug product that can be swallowed. So a lot of the techniques and very advanced um, 
processes, industrial processes that have been applied traditionally in the drug industry don't work particularly well uh, for microbiome therapeutics. And I think there's, a, you know, every company has encountered this issue and many have solved them in very different ways. Symbiotic Health is essentially focused on developing a platform technology to enable um, any microbiome therapeutic, early stage microbiome therapeutic that's observed, that's maybe um, coming out of a laboratory uh, to allow it to be rapidly formulated, which is basically uh, packaged um, into a, a product that can get the right amount of that bacteria um, or bacterial protein um, to the right part of the gut at the right time. Um, and so it's uh, that's really the primary focus is on drug delivery technologies. Um, I would say that the next big frontier, uh, not, not just for our company, but for um, uh, you know, for the field uh, of microbiome research is moving away from this uh, basically cataloging uh, of what's there um, into, um, in well, obviously the long-term goal is, as you said, is a comprehensive understanding of everything that's going on um, in the ecology of the gut. But that's uh, actually in advance of that, really a concrete demonstration that um, modulation or manipulation of the gut microbiome through um, introduced bacteria or another means can um, alter um, any disease process other than Clostridium difficile. And I would anticipate that I, I am optimistic that that, um, that that proof will be generated within the next three and a half years. That's great. Well, very good. Well, we're, um, we're out of time, but what's what's the best way for people to contact you for more information or to suggest collaboration, those kinds of things? Um, so uh, for um, projects related to symbiotic health, uh, it's uh, G. Honig, G-H-O-N-I-G, at symbioticbio.com. Um, and, uh, but I actually would particularly encourage anybody, any uh, startup or um, academic uh, working in the microbiome that has an interest in inflammatory bowel disease to contact me uh, at uh, G. Honig, that's G-H-O-N-I-G, at Crohn'sColitisFoundation.org. Very good. Well, Gerard, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And yeah, please feel free to follow up with any questions. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.